Please open up your Bibles to John, the fourth chapter. If you're a, a member or even a frequent attender here at Trinity, you are surely familiar with our practice that primarily our preaching is going to be through books of the Bible, or at least large chunks of Scripture, most often in consecutive order, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. That's not unique to Trinity. It's very prevalent in churches that minister, um, if you will, in the spirit of of the Reformation. Um, One of my favorite accounts is of John Calvin, who I'm often quoting his commentaries. He was a French reformer. He pastored a church in Geneva, Switzerland. And it came to pass while he was pastoring that church that he fell out of favor with the townsfolk. Interestingly enough, it was because he was insisting on the right practice of church discipline. But he fell out of favor, and they forced him out. Had to leave, and so he went to France and spent three and a half years in exile, if you will, in Strasbourg, France. While he was gone, the situation at that church in Geneva declined and deteriorated immensely. So bad that they actually realized their error and swallowed their pride and said, "Uh, would you please come back? And reluctantly, because he had been enjoying exile in France, (laughs) reluctantly, he agreed to go back. And so the very first sermon after his return, where they were probably bracing themselves and saying, oh, we're about to get it. (laughs) He said, open up. Well, I don't guess many of them had their own personal copies of Scripture, but he turned to the very next verse after the verse that he last preached upon three and a half years before and picked up right where he left off. And in doing so, he was demonstrating one of the chief benefits for this consecutive verse-by-verse preaching. It lets God set the agenda. Those that that follow this practice do so fully believing 2 Timothy 3.16. That, that all Scripture is breathed out by God, it's inspired by Him, and that it's useful, that every single bit of it is useful, and that we would benefit from hearing all of it, not just our favorite passages, or more specifically, the pastor's favorite passages. It protects the church from only hearing Scripture that pertains to the particular hobby horse or bully pulpit of the pastor, as the case may be. It also makes sure that we cover all of the things that God wants us to cover, and not just those things that the pastor feels comfortable enough to address or skilled enough to address. Now, one of the other benefits of this, and this is the reason that I, that I mentioned this this morning, consecutively working your way through a book gives you amazing context for what you come across. Throughout the week with this passage, I thought about that. It's the third sign that Jesus performs in John's gospel. The first was he turned water into wine. That was in Galilee. Uh, The second, he cleansed the temple, so obviously that's Jerusalem. And now he's going to be back in Galilee, and it's his first healing. And we could come to this text all by itself in isolation, just 
plop open your Bibles and just happen to look at this end of John chapter 4. And certainly we would benefit from it, but not like we will this morning. Not like we will if you've been here having all that we've already seen in these first four chapters of this gospel. With that context, looking at this healing, we'll not only better understand the healing, but we'll get the main point that it's not about the healing. It's about the healer himself. So I want to ask you to stand if you're able for the reading of God's word, John chapter 4, 43 through 54. After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. May the Lord bless the preaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we ask for your help once again like we always do. This morning I specifically ask that you, Holy Spirit, If anything that I say or explain lines up with the truths of Scripture, would you confirm that in all of our hearts? If anything that I should say does not line up with the truth of Holy Scripture, would you, by your grace, cause that to fade from our memories? Would only that which drives us to the Lord Jesus our great healer. Would those things be plain and clear and evident? And would you use that truth of his glorious gospel to change us, to transform us, indeed, to heal us? We ask in his powerful name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. As we dig into this passage this morning... We're going to learn quite a bit about Jesus in this first healing recorded in John's Gospel. I've given you an outline in the worship folder projected up on the screen. Jesus is the healer who is worthy of honor. Jesus is the healer whose healings aren't even the point, actually. 
And Jesus is the healer who is the only adequate object of our faith. Now, this context I was talking about earlier, it's going to come in handy as we get right into this passage and into the first point. Last week we finished the account of Jesus and this woman that he encountered at the well there in Samaria. And at the end of that account, we saw how she was witnessing to her fellow townspeople. And they ended up believing. And they asked Jesus to hang around, and he stayed for two days. And so you see there in 43, that's what these two days are when he departs for Galilee. And this is actually resuming the trip that he began back at the beginning of chapter 4. Right? Remember, he was heading from Judea to Galilee, and he had to go through Samaria. Now, pay close attention to the connecting words here and how these first few verses and the ideas in them are linked together. He's headed to Galilee, right? That's his home turf. After having been in Samaria, which is essentially a foreign land full of strange people and their erroneous religion and their pseudo-temple, now he's headed back to his home turf. Verse 44 says, for, because, essentially. He's going back there because he knows he won't get any honor there. Huh? It says for, maybe it should say even though. Maybe it should say despite the fact. He's going to Galilee despite the fact he's not going to get any honor. If you know you're not going to get any honor, why would you go there? Yet that's exactly what Jesus does. He does it because he knows he won't be honored. Hmm. Lots of ideas about why he does this. All kinds of theories. One that I read about this week was that it was because of Jesus' great humility. Right? He doesn't want people to make a big fuss, big deal about him. He would just as soon fly under the radar. But you see, this is where our context is helpful. Do you remember how John started this gospel? In the beginning was the Word, and he was with God, and he was God. And nothing that got created got created without him seems that John is kind of saying, hey, this guy is absolutely worthy of honor. Divine, eternal creator. And John even predicted in that first chapter the lack of honor he would receive. The, verse 11 of that first chapter, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. So because... For Jesus knows he won't be honored, he decides to go there. He's pressing in to that lack of honor. He's addressing, he's confronting that lack of honor, and he's going to do something about it. Keep paying attention to this connectedness. Verse 45, so he gets there and they welcome him. What? Because he wouldn't be honored, he goes there 
and they honor him. Well, not exactly. They welcomed him. New American Standard, if you have that, it says they received him. But we know that being welcomed and being honored, that's not the same thing. I might be welcomed at the end of the day by my kids when I get home, right? It might be enthusiastic, right? There might be much fanfare. Oh, Daddy, we are so glad you're home. But what if it's because yesterday when I came home, I brought donuts? (laughs) And they've got their hopes up that Daddy did it again. Or maybe it's this warm, heartfelt welcome. I'm so glad you're home. You know, I- I've missed you. Can I have $20? <laughs> you see, a welcome is not the same thing as honor. This welcome, this reception of the Galileans for Jesus is shallow. It's conditional. We know this from verse 45. They welcomed him having seen all that he had done. He brought donuts before. What's he going to do now? How's he going to wow us? How's he going to entertain us? What's he going to give us? context again. In coming to Galilee, where was it that he came from? Samaria. Those despised half-breeds, Jews who married foreigners, got the Bible and their religion all screwed up. Well, what was their response to Jesus? Um, Jesus was a huge success there. Their response was tremendous. It was huge. It was great. They'd never seen a greater response. Without a sign or a miracle. He didn't give them anything. He didn't do anything to wow them. It was just, the Scripture says, because of His Word. What a contrast. He goes back to His own people, to His own soil, and He receives a welcome that is fundamentally flawed. A welcome that is dependent upon what they've seen Him do in the the past and what they expect Him to do now. And it's because This welcome, this reception, is what it is that Jesus responds like he does. Because you see, once the the royal official makes this request of Jesus, Jesus responds in verse 48. And it seems a bit harsh. Come heal my son, please. We're assuming he said please. Jesus, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Oh boy, here we go again. All right, so first Jesus is being rude to his mama. 
And then he's rubbing the Samaritan woman's nose in all of her miserable past. Now he's going off on this poor guy whose son is about to die. Manners, Jesus, manners. But context. See, there's a lot more at play here. And the first clue that we miss, see, most of us have the ESV, the English Standard Version. We miss this first clue unless you have the SSV, the Southern Standard Version. You, you, you miss something because this you is actually plural. He's responding to this man, but he's not saying you singular. He's saying y'all. Unless y'all see signs and wonders, y'all won't believe. And so he's not just addressing the man. He's addressing the entirety of the Galileans who've assembled and who are sitting on pins and needles waiting to see what he does next. Jesus is the healer who is worthy of honor, but he's not getting any honor in Galilee yet. And so we might even be a little bit surprised that he does, in fact, heal the man's son might think that in, in his seeming testiness, right, because Jesus is not a fan of being used, we might think that he refuses. And he says, I'm not going to heal given the circumstances here. I'm not going to heal given their wrong expectation. But instead, he heals the man's son. So, Point number two on your outline, let's look at this healing a little bit. And let's see how it's not the point. So we've got this royal official. He's a pretty important guy from a worldly standpoint. And he's about 15 miles away in Capernaum. He hears that Jesus is back in town. His son is about to die, so he decides to make this trek. It's a full day's journey. He goes up to Galilee, and he says, hey, would you come down to Capernaum and heal him. So Jesus responds, and we've already seen it's not exactly what the man had been hoping for, but the man doesn't seem phased by that. He asks again. It almost seems like he demands, come down. And Jesus responds again, and he says, go. He's going to live. So we should note that He's done this, but it's on his own terms. It's on Jesus' terms. He's not making the trek down to Capernaum. He'll do this healing long distance. He just says the word, and it's done. That option isn't even on this official's radar, right? He didn't even know that. that, Is that a possibility? Can you do your magic from, from afar? I don't know. But see, this kind of harkens back to chapter 1, right? When, when the word who was with God and was God, and who created all things. How were those things created? By the word of his power. So Jesus heals the Son anyway. Why? Why does he heal the man's Son? It goes back to Jesus being worthy of honor and yet not being honored. Why does Jesus do any of the healings that he does? 
any of the miracles, any of the signs. He's doing those things to solve this honor problem. He's doing these things to reveal his identity as the eternal Son of God, infinitely worthy of honor. He healed the man's son anyway to show people who he was. You see, when Jesus did a miracle, when he healed someone, when he performed a sign, he was doing something physical and temporal to help people better understand the spiritual and the eternal. Let me say that again. In his signs and miracles and wonders, he's doing something physical and temporal, that earthly, bound to this time, to help people better understand the spiritual and the eternal. But the problem arises, and it very often arises, we have a tendency to get stuck in the physical and the temporal and make that the point instead of the spiritual and the eternal. But the physical and the temporal is never the point. The healings aren't the point. The healings are not why Jesus came. They weren't the point then, and they're not the point now. Though some folks would really want you to make them the point. I hate to break it to you. Your health and wealth and satisfaction is not the point. You being prepared for an eternity in the presence of your your Creator is the point. Now that's another sermon for another time. The healings were done to get us to the place where we see Jesus, where we see His power, where we see His ability in the physical realm so that we might be be enabled to believe that He has power to heal in the spiritual realm. And that's the healing that none of us can live without. If we're not healed spiritually, it will lead to something far worse than simply our death. You see, our sin and rebellion have earned for us a death that is a separation from God forever. And it's because of that fact that Jesus performed signs and wonders so that our eyes might be opened, that our attention might be drawn to Him Look at this miracle worker. Look at this healer. Look at this one who does signs and wonders so that our eyes might be fixed on him as he's lifted up. And as he dies the cruel death on the cross that he dies, 
that we would come to trust that last and greatest sign and wonder. The, the healings, the, the healing of this boy is just a means to an end. And we see very clearly what that end is in the life of this royal official. Our third point. When we see that Jesus is the only adequate object of our faith. There's a very interesting progression with this guy. Stages, if you will, of his belief. Um, he, and I've put this in the outline for you. He goes from believing the reports about Jesus to believing in the recovery of his son to finally, and most importantly, having his faith rest on and in the real Jesus. So this first stage... He's heard some of what Jesus has done. He's heard the hype. He's heard enough. He has enough belief, if you will, maybe even faith in a loose sense of the word, to at least make the 15-mile journey and ask. All right, so there's some level of believing there. Then in verse 50, Jesus says, go, he's going to make it. And the man believed what Jesus said. And I specifically... I started to put he believes in the healing of his son, but I don't even know if at this point he believes in the healing. He just believes in the recovery. It could just be that he's simply believing, okay, well, Jesus possesses some type of knowledge. Jesus happens to know that the fever's going to break, that it's not going to end in death like they thought. He just happens to know that he's going to make a turn for the better. That could be the extent of his belief at that point, just that what Jesus said, he's going to get better. But that's about to change, and the man's belief is about to get cranked up another notch or several, because on his way back, he gets the good news. He's getting better. And he asks... For some reason, prompted by the Spirit of God, maybe, he's got this curiosity. When exactly did he start getting better? And we see in verse 53, it was at the exact moment that Jesus said he would live. And so it's at that point that the man believed, not in the healing, but in the healer. At that moment, the only adequate object of the man's faith was the real Jesus. Eternal, powerful Son of God. The one who could speak the word from 15 miles away. And his son was healed. See, the healing wasn't the point. Getting the man to believe in the power of the healer, the powerful healer, the sovereign healer, the divine healer. That's the point. See, if we think the healings are the point, then we're not honoring Jesus, we're using him. We're using him to get what we want. Jesus becomes a means to an end. And far from honoring him, we even begin to manipulate him and his word. 
how, how can I pull these strings to get Jesus to do what I want? Will my, will my good behavior do it? Maybe it's my generosity. Maybe it's my giving. Will that, will that do it? Will that pull the lever and dispense from Jesus what it is that I want? That brings Jesus great dishonor. No, the thing that will honor Jesus would be to welcome him, to receive him as John has presented him in this gospel. The one who is worthy of honor, the one who is himself God and therefore infinitely wise and sovereign and good. And when we honor him like that, well, we acknowledge can he heal? Oh, you better believe it. He's got power like no other. Might he heal? Absolutely, he does it all the time. But our faith can never be in the healing. It can never be in the desired outcome. It's always got to be in the healer. It's got to be in Jesus himself and not what he may or may not give us. Because the truth is, sometimes in his sovereign wisdom, he chooses not to heal, not to fix it like we prayed for. And in that moment, difficult though it may be, we honor him when he is enough. No, I didn't get what I wanted. But if he is sovereign, and if he is all-powerful, and if he is gracious, and if he is good then the thing he withholds from me was not my ultimate good. May God grant us the humility and the grace to honor the Lord Jesus whether we get our healing in this life or only in the life to come. Oh, Jesus, you are good. And you are powerful. And you are our sovereign Savior. And you get everything that you want. You get every one of us that you want. You get every healing that you want. And ultimately, you get the glory and the honor that you want. Help us, Lord Jesus, to honor you in our healing or in our sickness, in our life or in our death. Give us eyes to see humility to trust and honor you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Please stand and let's sing in response.